can open your Bible with me. We're in Psalm 10. Uh, We are closing down this series in the next couple of weeks. We're going through um, Psalm 1 through Psalm 12, obviously at Psalm 10. uh, That will uh, give us, I guess, two more Sundays beyond this one in this series. Now, perhaps you have asked this mucky question, and it's a big question. It's a question that uh, keeps certain people from even engaging in faith. And the question is, why do people get away with evil? In fact, why does it seem sometimes like they prosper? Uh, Pick up the newspaper any given week, and you'll probably read a story where something like this happens. This story is a little dated. It took place in 1999 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Kenneth Keynes was inebriated, and he walked into the street, and he was hit and killed by a dark Jeep Cherokee. There were no real witnesses. No one knew who perpetrated the crime. The person hit, ran, and months and months of investigation go by, and they don't have a clue who did it. It seemed like they got away scot-free. Sometimes, as you think about this dilemma, it's not a a legal matter per se. What the person did is not illegal, but you would say that it is wrong or unethical. Uh, I know of a pastor, for example, who dealt with a pastoral situation. There was a young couple that was married, and they lived in Dallas, Texas. Uh, They did life together in their young 20s. The husband was pursuing a medical degree. The wife was supporting him in this endeavor. So they withheld having kids. She worked full time. She paid all the bills. And if you know anything about medical school, he's going at it 80 to 100 hours per week. By the end of the residency, The husband serves the wife divorce papers. He says, we're not compliant. We're not compatible. I think I need to go on my own now. Clearly, he used her to put him through school. So the question is, where is God in all of this? Where is he? Now, that is the question of the psalm in Psalm 10, verse 1. Take a look with me. It says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It turns out that the question that we're dealing with this morning, the psalm, is a persistent question. You've asked it. You're not the first to ask it. You won't be the last to ask it. In fact, it's asked reoccurringly throughout the Bible. You see it in the book of Job, the book of Habakkuk. You see it here in the Psalms. Why does it seem like sometimes God is distant and detached from the real world things that we're experiencing? Things like Good being called evil, evil being called good, evil seeming to be rewarded, and the vulnerable going unprotected. Well, Psalm 10 is one of the few psalms in the first part of the Bible that doesn't have a subheading. You may have noticed that as we've been making our way through the psalms. It'll say something like, this is a psalm of David, and give you a little bit of context as to when this happened in David's life when he wrote this prayer. 
But this one is almost, you know, a timeless question. We're not giving a subheading because every generation asks the question, God, where are you? And what's really odd about the placement of this psalm is it follows after Psalm 9. If you remember in that psalm, that psalm was a psalm of praise. And we talked about how praise was like medicine for the soul. When you're dealing with the muck of life, you elevate your soul by remembering who God is and praising him for it. And uh, Psalm 9 celebrates God as one who has established his throne in justice. He is a God of justice. So what's the deal? Where is this God of justice? And the bigger question is, as you're looking at these things and as your heart's struggling with them, how do the righteous respond rightly to what you're seeing in the world? Well, the psalmist kind of takes the approach like Charles Dickens does in his classic, A Christmas Carol. Uh, he gives us three ghosts, but in this psalm, we get two of the ghosts. We get the ghost of Christmas present, and we get the ghost of Christmas future. As we begin, we're going to begin with the ghost of Christmas present. This is what wickedness looks like right now. And as he unravels his answer to that tension, we'll get the ghost of Christmas future. This is what they will experience in the end. So let's take a look together. We'll read um, verses 2 through 11, and we'll see the present context. It says, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. I listened to a particular podcast that deals with current events from time to time, and the management of this podcast made a decision with respect to mass shooting events. You see, normally when a mass shooting event occurs, what happens in the news cycle? You see a picture of the shooter, we are told their name over and over and over again. In fact, it stays in the news cycle for weeks. But this particular podcast has made the decision that they will not name a mass shooter. Why? Well, because one of the reasons these people are doing this 
is because they want to be immortalized for their heinous act and crime. Which kind of begs the question when you're dealing with Psalm 10, why is it that the psalmist in Psalm 10 gives so much airtime to the wicked? Hmm. Well, I think there are two reasons as we make our way through this psalm. One reason I acknowledged in the prayer earlier, and it's because evil is a real and present danger. You wouldn't be rightly observing this world if you didn't acknowledge that there are evil people and evil things happening. Uh, Yeah, it is very common in philosophy today to deny the reality of evil, but the Psalms, the Bible in general, and our own experience tell us to throw that in the philosophical dumpster because it's not true. The second reason I want to suggest is that evil has a slippery slope associated with it. It's a warning to us. After all, do you think four-year-old Hitler ever dreamed of growing up to be 50-year-old Hitler? So what is this slippery slope? Well, I would describe it like this. I would say, beware of your attitudes. Why? Because attitudes become words and words become actions. Attitudes become words. Words become actions. There are three attitudes that I see in these verses, 2 through 11. The first attitude is that I am immune. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Clearly, evil people wouldn't do evil things if they believed they were going to get caught. But this person thinks they're immune from natural consequences for their behavior. The second attitude is, I'm superior. We see that right at the beginning. It says in verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And then as you move forward, you see what this pursuit looks like in verses 7 through 10. And as you reflect on what they're saying here, you have to ask the question, well, why is it that evil people target this particular cross-section of society, the poor? And the psalmist gives us this image of a lion. Now, how do lions hunt? (laughs) Well, they don't attack the strongest in the herd. They like to pick apart the weaker elements of the herd. They go after the sick, the feeble, the vulnerable in the herd. Think about the poor. Do the poor always know their rights? Do the poor always have access to the quality of education that other parts of society have access to? Do they know how to lawyer up? Do they have the means of lawyering up? In some situations, in our context, for example, sometimes the poor don't speak English, or at least not well. They're a little embarrassed by that inability to communicate, and so they remain silent. You know, I grew up in a a very urban context. I was reminded of that once again when I was traveling back to Chicago. Urban contexts are really different. Uh, in, in this urban context, you can be 
in different neighborhoods. You can be in a poor neighborhood, a middle-class neighborhood, an upper-crust neighborhood. I was thinking about when I lived, uh, did seminary in Moody, and you know, you'd go across the street in two blocks, you would be in the most dangerous neighborhood in all of Chicago, and in another two blocks in the other direction, you were in one of the most highly affluent neighborhoods in all of Chicago. It was called the Golden Mile. Now, how do you know when you're in a poor neighborhood? Well, you see some things. Pawn shops, credit unions, casinos, lotteries, liquor stores, tobacco stores, adult dance clubs. Why do they situate those businesses there? They're lions. And Scripture says that the reason that lions target the poor is because they believe they are better than them. I'm better. I have the right to rob this fool of his money because he doesn't know how to use his money. But listen to what the Scripture says to this arrogant attitude. If you look at Proverbs 22, verse 2, Uh, The proverb says that the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. It doesn't take much to come to the realization that I have no reason to be arrogant. I mean, am I truly a self-made person? Did I choose to which family I would be born into? Did I choose which place I would be born? Why was I born in the United States of America versus India? Did I choose how intelligent I would be? Did I choose how much access I would have to education so that I could grow my intelligence? Did I choose how good I would be at applying knowledge into wisdom? Did I choose even how much energy I would have to be self-motivated? Of course, You don't have to spend that much time thinking to say, well, who did choose all of that? God. Which leads us into the third attitude. The wicked set themselves up or posture themselves to say, I'm God. You see that several times in the psalm. Verse 4, there is no God. Verse 11, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And here's the thing. When you start discounting God in your worldview, there is no limiting principle. I can do whatever I want. Who's there to stop me? Why should anyone stop me? If I want something, I'm just going to take it. And thereby setting yourself up in his place, I am God. Now, as we move beyond attitudes, we get into this idea of words. Remember, this is a slippery slope, so attitudes become words. As you look at verse 7, I want you to focus there. It says that his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And when I think about violence and injustice, my mind tends to think of actions. They did something to someone. But as you look at the Psalms, the Psalm would say that the most common form of violence is words. C.S. Lewis made this observation as he was going through the Psalms. He said, it's all over the Psalter. 
One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. Get this last part. He says, no historical readjustments. In other words, you don't have to make this more relevant for today. We are in the world we know. People are still committing violence with their words today. And the Bible cautions us on words over and over and over again. It talks of words being life and words being death. For example, Proverbs uh, chapter 10, verse 11 says, The words of the godly are a life-giving fountain. The words of the wicked conceal violent intention. As you think about that proverb, and here's the deal with Proverbs. They're meant to be turned over in your mind meditated upon. There's different ways that you could see that proverb going in the real world as it's being lived out. And perhaps one of the ways we're to understand that is that there is not a lot of distance that needs to be traveled when someone starts talking about doing something to actually doing it. In other words, words become actions. Now, before we move past this contemplation of the wicked, I want to ask one more question. Who are these wicked that Psalm 10 is talking about? Are, are these like the enemies from afar? Are these those people that you see in the news broadcast that live in a distant land somewhere where you've never been and you hear about all the bad things that they're doing and you think to yourself, oh, someone ought to do something about that. Or is this the enemy next door? In other words, is this an Israelite? Is this someone that should know better? If we were to kind of translate it into our context today, is this someone who grew up in the church, knew the Bible, and knew God's will when it comes to matters of justice? Would it be someone that would even say, well, I am a Christian? But when you look at their actions, their actions look nothing like Christ. And I want to suggest, as you read between the lines of Psalm 10, this is an Israelite, someone living in the land. Now, many people today struggle with faith because of this very tension. I know people that greatly struggle with Christianity due to abuses of the past. Doing, due to times and seasons where, you know, the greater majority of Christians condoned evil behavior. Like, let's talk about a real issue this morning. How in the world could American Christianity ever condone the horrible, unjust, wicked institution of chattel slavery? How's that possible? Doesn't that seem like irreconcilable. And if you're thinking about exploring faith, pursuing faith, you think in your head, well, how could I ever subscribe to a faith where the Bible was used to keep people enslaved, where verses were quoted to them and saying, you're inferior, you should be subservient to me, and where it was utilized to make other individuals feel superior. How does that work? Well, one of the greatest proponents of Christianity during this time 
and one of the great defenders of it, was none other than Frederick Douglass, former slave. And Douglass, as he was working through this tension, saw a distinction between what he called slaveholding religion and Christianity proper. Let me read you his words. He said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Wow. Strong words. But it turns out that the greatest critique to Christianity gone bad is Christianity pursued faithfully. The Bible read plainly. Here you have this former slave who could pick up the Bible and read the words of Jesus and come to the realization that what we're being told has nothing to do with what Scripture teaches. So, that leads us to the resolve of the tension of this psalm. How do the righteous respond? You know, when you're looking out and God's feeling different, when it's distant, when it seems like, you know, good is being called bad and bad's being called good, when it seems like evil has the upper hand, when it seems like the vulnerable are being attacked. What do you do about all of that? And, and the answer that the psalmist gives us this morning is he says you need to lean in to God. You lean into him and his character. You lean into faith, believing in him more. You lean into hope, which is kind of odd when you think about it, because typically when you look out and someone feels distant, your emotional reaction is to what? Pull back. But the psalmist says, lean in. Listen to these words. This is uh, verses 12 to the end. The text says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So he gives us three reasons to lean in this morning. I want you to see the first reason, which is the linchpin reason, and that is verse 16 in the text. 
it says very clearly, the Lord is king forever and ever. So here's the deal. Even if you forget this truth, even if you go through a season where perhaps you lose perspective and you wonder and your thoughts are getting unraveled and you're like, how could the world be the way it is and God be king? Doesn't change the truth. He's still king. It makes me think of a, a story I read recently. The novelist Lloyd C. Douglas, when he was a university student, he, would, uh, he lived in a boarding house and, and he was on the upper floor and below him was uh, an elderly homebound retired music teacher. And so on a semi-regular basis, he would run down the stairs of the boarding house and he'd open up the door to the old man's room and he would say, what's the news for today to the old man? And the old man loved to go through the same motions every single time. He would grab a tuning fork, he would hit it on his wheelchair, and he would let it ring, and then he would say to Douglas, that there, my friend, is middle C. And middle C will be middle C tomorrow. It was middle C yesterday. It's going to be middle C even 10,000 years from now. Now, the tenor upstairs, he sings flat. The piano that's in the room over there, that thing's out of tune. But middle C is always middle C. You have to remember that. What's middle C? God is king forever and ever. Sometimes as you look out at the world, the piano is out of tune. But middle C always remains middle C. In fact, God's rule is far more unchangeable than middle C. Second, and this is a significant observation, if you look at verse 14, he says, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. Anytime, and we noted this in Psalm 9 as we were working through that, you look out, seems like evil has gained the upper hand. It seems like perhaps the perfect crime has been committed. Remember, there's always more to the story. I think about Kenneth Keynes when I was telling you his story from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and there's more to the story. Yeah, it looked like there was a hit and run. It looked like he, uh, the perpetrator, had gotten away with it, but it turns out that the culprit was none other than Thomas Druce, an up-and-coming politician in the Pennsylvania legislator. Now, Druce, on that fateful day, he came home, and there was noticeable damage to his car, and some of the neighbors asked him what happened. Well, I was in a minor wreck, but everything's okay. He even has the audacity to call his insurance company and ask for a claim to be filled. He tells them, I hit a barrel on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And after all, there's always construction on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So that's really believable. So the story's sold, it's bought, hook, line, and sinker, everything's good. He gets his cash, he gets to move on with his career. Well, that's until, of course, the police receive an anonymous Christmas card divulging the name 
of the person responsible for the hit and run. So several months later, Drews is interrogated to discover he indeed did it, and he's sent to prison for two to four years. The scriptures tell us, you know, I think of Jeremiah 23, 24. This is a question from the Lord himself. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth? So even in a world where it appears like no one sees, there is an omnipresent, omniscient God who always sees. And we come to the third note uh, of why we can lean in, and this note is a note of hope. Uh, the psalmist says this in verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Do you see the note of hope here? This is a promise from the Scripture. As we look at what this psalmist is telling us, he's saying several things. He's saying God's king. God sees. And finally, God will do justice. So in those near-term moments when the wicked is looking over their shoulders and they're saying, no one can stop me, I get away with my wickedness, the faithful lean into hope. They take passages like Revelation chapter 11, 15 as a promise from God. And that promise is that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the, in other words, the faithful expect, hope, believe that Jesus is coming back. And that he's going to settle all accounts. And he will do justice. As a believer, the only way to resolve this mucky question is with hope. Do you believe God is king? Do you trust that he sees? Do you lean into the promise that he will do justice? Sometimes you see the fulfillment of that in the immediate, but a lot of times it just feels like it's taking a long time. So then, as the people of God, we pray the prayer of this psalm, arise, O Lord. Now, what is that prayer request, arise, O Lord? What does that mean? Well, it means that I feel like I've got nothing left. I have no more hope, nowhere to turn. God, unless you show up in this dynamic, I'm going to be swept away. And I got to tell you, think about this world. There are people praying that prayer every day all over the place in this world, 365 days a year, 24-7. How does God answer that request in the lives of so many people? I want to suggest this morning that God often chooses to provide relief and shelter to the oppressed through faithful Christians who seek to do justice and to extend mercy. I was um, just this past Tuesday on a board of directors call with Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. And the president, John, had just taken a trip over into the, the African 
uh, side, East Africa side of the ministry, and he was in Zambia, and he met uh, a beautiful chaplain named Charity. Great name. Now, Charity heard of a woman who was kept in isolation in one of the prisons in Zambia, and when she arrived on the scene, the woman was clearly sick. She could tell because her skin had an orange, of, uh, a tinge of orange to it. So Charity's questioning the woman, and she says to Charity, she says, they're treating me like I have leprosy. She comes to find out that this woman is HIV positive. It's gone into full-blown AIDS. She has three children on the outside of the prison. The, the children has no one looking out for them. Her clothing is rags and tatters, and she has one piece of underwear to her name. She's desperate. Now, how did this woman, her name's Mary, how did she find herself in this situation? Well, on the outside, Mary was a prostitute. She was poor, she was desperate, she was raising three children, she felt like she had no other way of securing an income. She lives this very hard life. She's working all night, sleeping all day, and in the meantime, while all of that's transpiring, what are three boys doing? They're running around the streets. The 11-year-old son decides that he's going to fall into the wrong, wrong crowd and he's going to start committing petty crimes. Starts stealing things like cigarettes. He starts developing a smoking habit. Mary becomes aware of this and she confronts her son. And in fact, the confrontation gets really intense, so much so that one of the neighbors calls whoever you call in Zambia when something like that happens, whether it's the police or child services or whatever, they show up on the scene, and Zambia has very strict laws for crimes against children. Mary's arrested. She's not given a trial, not a hearing, and sentenced to five years in the penal system. Mary by the time Charity arrives, is so broken. She's in this deep, dark well of depression, and she is bitter, particularly towards her son, who she felt was responsible for this taking place in her life. In the midst of that darkness, a chaplain chooses to bring the hope of the gospel, and not just the, the gospel in word only, you know, the gospel in word only is when you go into a context like that and you say, well, let me just tell you that God loves you and then I'm just going to go about my day. That kind of gospel really doesn't seem as powerful as the lived gospel. See, the lived gospel is where a charity sees a Mary and the charity says, you know what, I'm going to go secure the funding of $50 to make sure that she has medicine. She's going to go home to her own wardrobe. And she's a chaplain. She doesn't have a lot of money. She grabs clothes out of her own wardrobe. She brings those clothes to charity. And think about this penal system, crimes against children. And yet, when they arrest this mother, these three boys are left to fend for themselves. So charity ensures that the boys are cared for. And it's in the midst of this gospel and fleshed word and action that Mary enters into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. She finds hope in the darkest place you can imagine, the solitude of a prison cell. 
Mary starts getting discipled by charity, walking with Christ. And she gets let out of prison for good behavior. She reconciles with her son. So I'm looking at this psalm. This is my thought, and I just want to say that this is Rob Wheeler speaking. This is not Psalm 10 speaking right now, okay? I sometimes wonder if God is silent because he is waiting on us. We pray, verse 1, where are you? Why are you silent right now? Uh, we, we pray that prayer when we look out and we think about the things like in our own neighborhood, like kids going hungry, uh, children in the foster care system, and we're like, well, why doesn't God provide for them? And, and we think about the human trafficking that takes place in this northeast corridor, or you even go overseas and you think about a Mary rotten away in a dark prison cell, and you ask the question, God, where are you? And maybe sometimes his silence is actually a call to action. I am responding. I know that this is taking place. I'm waiting for you to do something about it because you're my light in this world. You're my people. You're my ambassadors. You be the answer to the prayer. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. I want to read just a, a small section from Mark to you in light of this thought. And then I'll close us with prayer. Mark 6, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups. They sat in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on Psalm 10 and Mark 6, of course we ask the question, where are you? Why do we see evil persist in the world? 
Yet from the own example of our Lord who looked out at that helpless crowd and he took compassion on him, his answer to the disciples, us, is you do something about it. You feed them. Of course, Lord, as we look at our own resources, our own abilities, our time, our talent, our treasures, we only have five loaves and two fish. (laughs) Uh, I don't have a lot to offer, Lord. I'm sure most here don't feel that way. But you are the great multiplier of our good efforts. You turn five and two into enough to feed 5,000 with 12 baskets filled to the brim left over. So Lord, this morning, it's by faith and in faith that we ask that you would use us to be difference makers in this world for the sake of your glory and as ambassadors to show people that you are good and you are king and you intend to bring a full and final justice into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.